Uh, thank you so much for, for being here. Folks, I, I think this is the time to let you know that I don't know. I really don't know. Welcome to the African Tech Roundup, episode 137. This is where we round up the most important tech, digital, and innovation highlights from across the African continent. My name is Andile Masugu. Thank you for tuning in. Now, here's to hoping you are healthy and safe, what as the world braves the COVID-19 crisis, a situation which will be the subject of this particular installment of the show. And so joining me today, I'm pleased to say, in the guest co-host seat is returning friend of the show, Eugenio Garladone. How are you doing, man? I'm doing very well. I'm in, under lockdown, as everybody, I'm sure, listening to the podcast. Uh, and uh, it's a total pleasure to be back in the new seat. It's quite comfortable. You have a fresh new baby on lockdown uh, that makes three. <laughs> that must be crazy right now. Yeah, we didn't plan it. Uh, you know, uh, newborn and lockdown are not the perfect combination, but uh, I can also see it as an extended paternity leave. So can't complain. Alessandro. Alessandro is the first name and the second name is? I believe it's Andile. <laughs> <laughs> it is Andile. I'll, I'll have you know I'm more partial to the second name. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure you are. <laughs> well done. You really called your baby Andile. <laughs> I did. Actually, it took a long time. He didn't have a name when we left the hospital. And it took us a full 10 days to come up with the two names. But now we're really happy. That's incredible. I happen to be the third born of uh, three boys. Um, wow. So it's, it's quite interesting that you have as your third born Andile, which is yeah quite, quite a thing. That's really interesting. Listen, for those of you who don't know Eugenio, he's associate professor in media studies at Wits University. And he's also an associate research fellow in new media and human rights in the program in comparative media law and policy at the University of Oxford. He's also the author of a book called China, Africa, and the Future of the Internet, which of course provided the springboard for our discussion the last time he was on the show. That was episode 132, would you believe? It was a fascinating episode entitled, Is the Africa-China or China-Africa Tech and Innovation Dynamic Win-Win? Well, it's now among the top five most listened episodes we've ever published. Congratulations, man. Thank you for uh, bringing your swag to our pad. <laughs> Thank you. I, I had no idea that I made it so high up in the list, but it was for me, I had a few podcasts in my career. It was definitely the most fun I had. So speaking with you and us, Ruman, was, was a total pleasure. So thank you for re-inviting me. The pleasure was certainly ours. A lot of what we talked about in that episode uh, obviously resonating with what was you know, topical at the time, but certainly more so what is now evolving as a much greater narrative about the role of China in Africa and the role of tech in that narrative. And of course, everything you've researched and brought to bear in that discussion, truly, truly, truly gold. If you haven't listened to that show, again, it's episode 132. It's entitled, Is the Africa-China, China-Africa Tech and Innovation Dynamic Win-Win featuring Eugenio Gardadone? You can find it on our website at africantechroundup.com right now. But before we push on, we have a special guest joining us today. Hello and welcome to the African Tech Roundup, Professor Londre Seigneur. Hello, thank you very much for having me. The pleasure is ours. Thank you for making the time. I'm actually going to take a deep breath before I introduce you to the village, Londre, because your bio is quite a read. But I think it's quite important that people have a better sense of, of why you're here today and why you know we're really privileged to have you factor in on our discussion. So 
Landry is a senior fellow in the Global Economy and Development Program at the Brookings Institution. He is a fellow at Stanford University's Center for African Studies. He is the chairman of the Global Network for Africa's Prosperity, an Andrew Carnegie Fellow, a 2016 Woodrow Wilson Public Policy Fellow, and he is also now a full professor and founding co-director of the Fourth Industrial Revolution and Globalization 4.0 at Thunderbird School of Global Management. Yo, before I carry on, Landry, where were you born? I was, thank you very much for the uh, too kind introduction. Uh, I was born in Cameroon and I grew up uh, in Cameroon. I spent time between Cameroon, France, uh, Canada, and the U.S. But then before your current sort of full professorship, you were a professor in Alaska? What are the coldest places on earth? You're from Cameroon. <laughs> yeah, I'm, let, I'm struggling. <laughs> let, let me tell you that probably Montreal, where I spent uh, many years, was colder than uh, Anchorage. At least when I, when I spent a few days year there, because people told me, well, it is much warmer now. However, uh, my coldest year that I spent uh, since I was born uh, were the year I spent in Montreal. Wow, that has to be global warming, because to my mind, Anchorage should be easily, easily colder than Montreal. <laughs> In my mind, anyway. Listen, I'm not even done with your bio, as you know, Landry. So let me just carry on and, you know, I'll, I'll check in with you. Landry is also a Desmond Tutu fellow. He is a World Economic Forum young global leader. And then prior to all this, Landry was a, a managing consultant of a strategy firm, as well as a visiting scholar at the University of Oxford, He's also served on a bunch of boards, including that of Ampion Catalyst for Entrepreneurship and Innovation in Africa and the United Nations Association of Canada, Montreal. And he was appointed by a United Nations Undersecretary General to serve on the Global Network on Digital Technologies for Sustainable Urbanization. Now, Professor Signier has also authored many academic and policy publications focused on the African continent, the global political economy, politics of economic reform and foreign aid, emerging and frontier markets, institutional change, political regimes. Listen, the list goes on. But perhaps most importantly for our discussion today, Landry's poised to have a new book published called Unlocking Africa's Business Potential. Now, the idea is not to position him or ourselves as the preeminent authorities in any of these subjects, but it's certainly our intent to make the most of this amazing brain. Thank you so much again for joining us, Landry. Thank you very much for having me. And congratulations on your great show. Everyone says, uh, singing your praise. I humbly received the affirmation. And uh, again, I am nothing without amazing company. So Eugenio, thanks so much for fielding the offer to co-pilot this episode with me. Between the two of us, I think uh, certainly more ideas than we do have space on this particular episode. But we're going to give this a roaring try. We want to unpack over the next short while our feelings about COVID-19, you know, as interested and affected parties you know, thoughtfully sorting through some of the ideas that are bubbling to the surface around the economic impact and recovery theories that are, are making the rounds on the internet and in academic circles, but also in media circles. Now, I'm not going for a myth-busting public service announcement vibe with this show. My intent in inviting you both here is to curate a conversation that is less a deep dive into, say, the medical science side of things, but more maybe about an analyzing Africa's socioeconomic prospects from a resilient standpoint. 
So I'm hoping that we can make sense of the ongoing fallout, you know, as governments, everyday citizens, institutions, basically all of us decide how best to respond to this crisis. I want us to consider the practical trade-offs, the adaptations, the the sacrifices that Africans and perhaps citizens of the planet might need to prepare to make in order to survive and then thrive when this is all behind us. So the thing we'll do, Landry, is use some of the themes from your new book as a springboard for the discussion. And then we'll try and work out to what extent the COVID-19 situation either challenges or validates some of the deductions you've made in that book. Does that sound good, guys? Sounds great. Absolutely. Okay. So let's start this way. Perhaps by you guys telling me what immediately pops into your heads when you think COVID-19 and Africa right now. What, what comes to mind for you, Eugenio? Well, I think the thing that comes to mind are many, but I think it's experiment. And uh, here in South Africa, unfortunately, I have uh, not a continental perspective on this one because uh, I'm locked down. With three kids, you can't just explore too much what's happening around the world. But we are in tw day 21 of our lockdown. Uh, and as part of it, uh, there has been a ban on alcohol, a ban on cigarettes, uh, a ban on traffic, basically. And uh, of course, the obsession is very much on... Uh, the disease and how to prevent people from dying. Uh, but I would expect, I would love uh, that uh, some of my colleagues at WITS or in other universities in South Africa and across the world would also look into like uh, the outcomes of these massive social experiment. You know, as you know, alcohol is a big issue here in South Africa. And uh, people have to go dry all of a sudden, definitely with the extension. And uh, what is this uh, uh, going to provoke uh, into family lives uh, and cigarettes and uh, less pollution and so forth. And this is just some examples. So I think we should be able to read, uh, of course, there is a lot of anxiety going around, uh, but as uh, social scientists, uh, we should be able to springboard uh, new pieces of research to understand also what is happening uh, because of these uh, byproduct of the spread of the virus. I think it's, uh, there is a great challenge, but there are so many opportunities in this moment. So I think these experiment uh, is unique and we should be able to have the data not just on like how many people are infected and so forth uh, but learning from it uh, can we change our way to deal with social lives uh, in ways that were impossible to think uh, even like a few weeks ago a lot of our listeners won't be familiar with what you've referenced as the problem South Africa has with alcohol specifically. What are you talking about? Well, I'm talking about uh, domestic violence. I'm talking about baby being born uh, with uh, issues related to abuse of alcohols by mothers and, uh, and so forth. So this is in the news uh, on a regular basis. If you are a listener of the most common radios, this is a problem that is talked about. It's not under the carpet. Uh, but now we are in a completely different scenarios. Uh, and, and I think we should learn from it. So South Africa has one of the highest rates of crime related to alcohol alcohol abuse anywhere in the world. And as you say, that dysfunction often starts domestically in homes, but often ends up in our streets. Also, a fairly ridiculously, unacceptably high rate of alcohol-related accidents on roads and the impact it has on public medical health care and the toll it takes, again, indirectly on young people and social well-being and mental health, etc. Really interesting what you're pointing to here, this need for us to identify how these experiments are going to pan out for us. I wonder what comes to mind for you, Landry. Many questions uh, come to my mind when I heard about the word COVID-19 in Africa. So what are the key vulnerabilities in Africa when it comes to COVID spread? 
So as we know, African countries are facing numerous uh, challenges and policy constraints, which increase vulnerabilities. Let's talk about the limited preparedness for epidemics until mid-February. Almost no African country had the ability to really uh, detect the virus. Uh, fortunately, uh, the uh, African Center for Disease Control quickly empowered many of the countries in the continent. So we have the high incidence and mortality rates and prevalence of other infectious diseases, so which will also uh, worsen in case uh, of a higher spread on the continent. We have the high social cohesion and gathering, although now they have been forbidden, but we know that many are not respected. For example, some countries, like in Uganda, who can have an attendance of about 82% of citizens to uh, traditional and religious activities. So those are uh, factors which increase vulnerability. I can also speak about the weak healthcare system in general. Most of the African countries are lagging compared to the rest of the world in terms of uh, healthcare system. We have the limited capacity to provide critical care due to weak infrastructure. Some countries have less than three ventilators in case of a worsening situation for uh, citizens who may be sick. We have the limited social protection and systems. For example, on one hand, you have lockdowns, but on the other hand, many citizens cannot have access to food, uh, to clean water. I'm going to jump in there because it's a lot of the stuff I'd like us to get into in more detail. And, and one of the things that leapt out to me, I actually just put, you know, put it down as you said it, this concern with Africa's profile as far as pre-existing conditions uh, within the population. I'm from Zimbabwe and live in South Africa. As you know, you'll know, in those countries, we're, we're dealing with a fairly high prevalence of TB cases as well as uh, people living with HIV and the thing that comes to mind for me with parents living in Zimbabwe and uh, my two brothers, um, my brother and his wife and their children living there and, and knowing just lim how limited their options are, God forbid, should anything happen to them as far as potential exposure to this crisis. I think for me, that's been the most sobering aspect. You know, the, the idea that you've just given us a laundry list of vulnerabilities, but for me... The first thing that comes to mind when I hear sort of COVID-19 in Africa, literally, I see my family in my mind's eye. I see my parents. I see two amazing academics who've done a lot for their society and their country and, and are now unable to access the healthcare they regularly get in South Africa um, on an annual basis and are, are pretty much sitting ducks except for what I believe to be the grace of God. So, yeah, I, I don't mean to bring the mood down, but I think it's important that we... We almost anchor these ideas in the stakes for the everyday African. You are absolutely right. Uh, yesterday night, uh, an African-American friend of mine sent me a, a CNN video showing people in Kiberia, in uh, the slum in Kenya, and who were competing to receive food because now they are not uh, technically allowed to uh, sell. They were informal small trader, uh, so they don't have necessary revenue and they don't have access to uh, in quantity and quality to food and to clean water. I've seen no social distance amongst them, uh, many people fighting to get some food. So those 
vulnerabilities are not just words, they're not just technical aspects. And I think, as you pointed out, one of my first reactions when COVID, the COVID outbreak uh, started to reach the African continent was to send enough resources, for example, to my family, my dad, who still live in Cameroon, so that they can acquire enough supplies in order to be able to spend two or three months without almost going out. And not everyone on the continent necessarily has the ability to purchase things for many months in advance. Uh, I have discussed also with some of my friends, of course, I, I kept in, in touch with some of my friends uh, who have not been successful necessarily at the university level or at school, and then there are small traders and small restaurant owners, some of them. And I can't tell you, it is shocking. They, they cannot easily feed their family. So the reason why it's, it's important to connect both those personal history, I think, with the broader systemic consideration, which make us better understand the leverages also uh, that we can use to fix or to help uh, provide the most effective response first to the health crisis, but also to the broader economic crisis, which is also uh, looming. On the upside uh, of this, I was truly impressed, uh, to be honest, uh, by some of the responses uh, to the crisis uh, in places like South Africa, but also Ethiopia. And I'm not a fan of the idea of international development. It comes with a lot of baggage. Uh, it comes with like uh, the prehistory of colonialism with it. Uh, but I think also the exposure to certain ideas where we, Laundry, I think we also share these, uh, you know, that the experience in the world of uh, international development and uh, policymaking. Uh, and I think the exposure to scientific evidence that sometimes went wrong, uh, let's, let's be clear, has, has also enabled some leaders in Africa, as compared to Europe, uh, to be able to listen to the evidence and the science. And we see what demagogues in uh, Western countries are doing. Uh, we had the example of Donald Trump in recent days or uh, uh, of Boris Johnson in the UK. And then we would have expected these countries to be leading uh, in uh, definitely scientifically grounded responses to it. Uh, but these are actually coming from Africa. And this is unique. And uh, and I think we should recognize that more. Obviously, it's a high level, it's a structural level, it's, uh, it's a very far away from uh, individual experiences. Uh, but this is a response that has impressed many. And I think uh, we should also break the narrative of just the fragilities of uh, Africa. Definitely those are there. But uh, some of the experiences that have matured in the continent uh, are proving quite effective right now. Coming from you, that's a lot, Tijinho, especially considering you're Italian, you still have family in Italy. No secret, it's one of the hardest hit countries by this crisis to date. What has your sense been fielding live experiences of what's going down in a place like Italy and then living through the response to this crisis in South Africa? Well, I share very much uh, your feelings because uh, uh, my mind goes to my parents. They live in a small village in, uh, in northern Italy. And they are in their 70s, so I'm afraid for their health. And uh, they are being good citizens, so staying at home. And But at the same time, Italy has been very much on the front line. You know, after the responses from China, it was probably the first democracy that had to deal with huge numbers of uh, individual affected. And so they had to just learn a lot from trial and error. What I'm more surprised by are countries like Spain or the UK or the US who had time to learn from the mistake that Italy made. And the mistakes, uh, I'm not like uh, pinning politicians for these mistakes. We're inevitable. We are all human beings. Uh, but 
there could have been much more learning from Italy in countries that are nearby. And I see much more ability to listen and to learn in a country like South Africa than I see in the UK. So that's what I mean. And so what would you point to as a learning point from the Italian situation? Definitely. I think Italy had to face the crisis as it were happening and other countries had learned from Italy and uh, but uh, no what i mean is uh, what do you see as south africa having learned from that that perhaps other countries oh i think i think south africa decided to go for a national lockdown immediately italy had to first create these kind of red zones around the most infected areas uh, and some places like the united states have done something similar for new york and for california and uh, they've learned that these kind of uh, more limited geographically limited uh, ways of locking down were not effective uh, and so they decided to go straight. And this is also the case of Ethiopia, many other countries, Kenya, other countries on the continent. And the panic, I think this is the, tr- the, the, the tragic uh, lives of doctors on the front line who had to decide uh, through triage which individuals affected by, by the disease uh, were going to receive uh, care and ventilators and which didn't. Uh, had also inspired uh, some of the responses, saying uh, here in South Africa, we are probably not going to fight the disease and, and win over the disease, uh, but we don't want to be in this tragic situation where we have like uh, crowds of people around hospitals that can't provide uh, health to them. This is what Italy and now New York, unfortunately, had to face. This is the, the most tragic ethical decision that someone can make. Uh, and I think these are being prevented right now, and this is really commendable. Londre, uh, you know, I've been digesting insights that uh, my wife Stabiso has gleaned. Stabiso is a health economist, and she recently attended a webinar hosted by the International Health Economics Association. And um, it featured preliminary modeling that conservatively projected that the COVID-19 pandemic would result in a recessionary impact on the UK economy, roughly five times worse than the worst one experienced in our lifetimes. Now, I've also been reading stuff being put out by consultants like McKinsey, you know, folks theorizing about how institutions and corporations might need to work through this crisis and listening in on conversations people are having via, you know, video conference. These are Africa-focused founders, investors, C-suite executives, academics, everyday people are having conversations about what the impact might be. And, you know, just listening to Eugenio there, realizing that, you know, there's learning that we're going to need to do in retrospect, obviously, all of us who survived this, but there's learning that needs to be done on the go. And what is your sense of the role of projections of this nature in influencing what we should be doing right now, especially in the light of considerations like, you know, life above all else, which has become the the prevailing wisdom by a lot of countries around the world. I would hazard that by certain estimates, at least economically, you know, just allowing this this disease to mow through the world without trying to stop it would probably be the most economically efficient way to deal with it, except it'd probably be politically incorrect and probably for the most part not ethical from a public health perspective. So what's the role of all this thinking and where do you think it should fit in, in the minds of those of us who are actively trying to figure out what to do next? I think as uh, Isinho pointed out, we are bridging the words of science and policy of ideas and action. So at least that is one of the, uh, so I will not say merit, but leaders have demonstrated 
a, a higher likelihood of bridging the world of science and policy as uh, they are facing COVID-19. So those projections show that it is extremely important to take action and to be bold. You may recall that at the beginning of the health crisis, many observers were thinking that Africa will not be drastically affected. And I was very worried about that because preparedness uh, should take into consideration a possible worst scenario. For now, let's say that many of the countries uh, which are the best prepared to face uh, epidemics or pandemics on the continent are also some of the most affected. Let me speak about South Africa, Algeria, Egypt, Morocco, Tunisia. On the other hand, some of the countries with the weakest, let's say, uh, state uh, capacity or health system are also less affected. So the dramatic change will may occur when you will see the weakest countries or the less prepared country if they become also the most affected one. So the uh, different projections were taken very seriously. I think at the Brookings Institution, my colleague have uh, made projections. UNECA, Mackenzie, as you spoke also, and the World Bank uh, recently, which highlighted the fact that Africa will face the first recession in 25 years. So those alarming projections have contributed at least to a beginning of border leadership on, uh, the, in the international community, but also in the African side. For example, the IMF uh, has uh, announced measure to uh, reduce debt on the, on the African continent. It was the same for France and uh, the Paris Club. Uh, you have many ongoing conversations uh, about debt relief but on one hand. But on the other hand, uh, African countries are also taking serious action to, on one hand, curve uh, or stop end the, the health crisis, but on the other hand, explore ways uh, to sustain economic activities. So, yeah, I think it's extremely important to have those type of scientific evidence because leaders have demonstrated, at least now, that they are taking it seriously. When they challenge it, they have seen the consequence of challenging it, so they are opening their hair, and even not to name them, some of the uh, president who have the reputation of uh, not taking the scientific evidence for granted, have acknowledged following the recommendations uh, of scientists, even when they disagree. And so, so I, I'm speaking about uh, President Trump, for example, uh, in one of his press conferences, he clearly said that he doesn't necessarily share the viewpoint of uh, some of his doctors or experts. However, he has still taken action to follow uh, on their recommendations. So some of these bold moves Landry is uh, alluding to include, you know, the experiments you were alluding to, Eugenio. I mean, let's take something as on the surface, perhaps noble and unassuming and unproblematic as banning, the, you know, the sale and public consumption of alcohol, uh, cigarettes. That is an unprecedented, depending how you look at it, an unprecedented overreaching of moral regulation, which has, you know, folks like me, a little concern that we might look back on these times and granted, we'll be grateful that the projections and the science emboldened our leaders to make these bold boss moves on one hand, but on the other, we might look back with regret at how much of our freedoms and our personal rights to self-determination we gave away in the name of sort of protecting ourselves from a virus. 
No, I, I think you're absolutely right. I, I want to make sure that I'm not a prohibitionist. Uh, you know, I enjoy my glass of wine here and there and my beer with friends. Uh, so I'm not... And to not... balance that, by the way, I do not drink alcohol. If anything, I'm making this observation, observing how many fellow teetotalers have been very vocal on social media on some, hey, I hope it never comes back, you know? And I'm like, wait a minute. No, uh, but my, my point is exactly, that's that's what I make. Of course, the, the medical scientists are at the forefront and it's, it's, and it's so important. But I think this could be the value of research in protecting freedom of expression. So there should be, I, I'm not in favor of expanding the ban uh, for the next uh, years or, or future to come. But if we had the information, if we had the data that's showing to people who overindulge in alcohol of what has happened into these like three weeks or month and a half and uh, how many lives were saved, how many incidents of the cases of domestic violence were avoided, how people find their way into an alcohol-free uh, routines and so forth. Uh, if we had that data that could tell us uh, what we gain and what we learned, uh, that would be incredibly valuable information for public campaigns. Say, you know what, when we turn it down, uh, that's what happened. And uh, why don't you, as an individual with uh, free choice and freedom of expression and, uh, and freedom to decide what is your path towards happiness, uh, take that into account. That opportunity is not going to come again. Yeah. And that's where I say that the focus has to be in protecting ourselves and protecting our communities. Uh, but if people don't have three kids as I do and can ex uh, use a brain power to solve some of these questions, uh, I think it would be so valuable in the years to come. Should research point to the fact that Italy, for example, typically has a much higher consumption rate of tobacco than other parts of Europe? And maybe that played a factor along with a generally older population, among other factors. It might prove to be a very strong case for shaping policy around tobacco, for instance. But I suppose what I'm talking about is, for the most part, almost unchecked wholesale transfer of, of regulating human moral activity that we're sort of giving over to our governments and, and perhaps large tech firms, which we'll talk about later, and really not thinking about where that could lead us if we're not careful. Let me say that exceptional circumstances, those are part of the social contract. If you think about the notion of modern state has emerged, citizens were giving up some of their fundamental rights and freedom in order to receive protection uh, from the state in a specific territory. So we have to make a distinction between perhaps democracies and non-democratic uh, countries. So those exceptional circumstances uh, which empower some of the leaders to uh, restrict some of the uh, freedom of movement, among others, in, technically, in democracies, things should come back to normal. And if not, you also have the check and balance system where the, uh, within the executive, the judiciary, and the legislature to ensure that or to reduce at least counter the power of the executive. Where I may be a little bit more concerned is mostly in non-democratic uh, countries or in, uh, let's say, democracies of weak quality where you have hyper-presidentialism and where the level of checks and balance, what we call horizontal accountability, may be lower. 
However, I think that under exceptional circumstances, we will not be responsible for a leader not to take the proper course of action as long as they respect the constitution and uh, as long as the other institutions uh, which are playing an oversight role could step in when uh, the situation come back to normal. So it is mostly uh, non-democratic countries where coming back to normal may be more complex because those will also require a mobilization of the civil society uh, or will depend on the goodwill of the, of the leader. I'd like to push back on that a little bit because um, it is my experience as someone who didn't choose to be born in Zimbabwe black <laughs> in 1984 to a recently independent Zimbabwe that that social contract was not one I entered into willingly. And of course, I don't want to conflate my concern with our thinking around these issues with the, the idea that nothing should be done and that sovereign governments shouldn't have the right to sort of act in the best interests of their countries if it means sort of impeding on, on certain rights and privileges from time to time. I do just wonder if we are applying ourselves sufficiently, especially in the context of democracy, to how and when that ought to happen, if those conversations are adequately taking into account the lottery that determines where you're born and the varying levels of access to privilege that affords you. Some have argued that perhaps this is not the time to have that argument, given how, you know, as we discussed earlier, we still have families confined within the borders of countries that are experiencing crazy vulnerabilities but the fact is, I think COVID-19 is giving us an opportunity here that we should grasp, which is to face up to the realities of what the system is set up to do and do well, for whom and when, and what the limitations of those situations are. If you understand what I'm meaning, guys, I don't know if you guys yes, feel me I on think that. No system is perfect. Even when you speak about democracies, we have different qualities of democracies, from perhaps the electoral one, which have... Uh, a lower level, for example, of uh, political rights and civil liberties, and perhaps weak, weaker checks and balances to uh, more liberal type of uh, democracies and substantial type of democracies, which probably provide a uh, larger space for participation, for competition, and human rights, economic rights, uh, among uh, other factors. So I think this is an important time to have all those conversations. I don't think that is a conversation for later. But we need to also make a distinction. Uh, and I want to be certain that I understand your question. Are you suggesting that, for example, as lockdown and quarantine, freedom of movement, for example, we should, uh, leader may not do so. But we have to make a clear distinction. And the clear distinction here is between what is absolutely necessary to end the health crisis and additional issues or abuses resulting from those actions. Okay. So abuses should not be tolerated. For example, seeing uh, the security forces beating up citizens, etc. This should not be tolerated. That's a really good question for you to ask. I think Eugenio will, will know this because he's living in South Africa. The chief of police in the country at the moment is... <laughs> has built somewhat of a reputation of being anti-alcohol. You know, his press statements are, are very entertaining, often for the wrong reasons, because he, he often alludes to how if he had his way, none would ever have a drink ever again 
all the bars would be shut. And so there's a version of that that's being normalized. I'm using alcohol intentionally because it, on the surface of it feels ridiculous. Come on, I mean, come now. Yes, it's just a glass of wine. Let people be. And 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 I think you're right. I happen to have a, a, a strong view that alcohol isn't good for you, but I have a sense that you know everyone should have the option to to have as much or as little of it to their own potential detriment. But that decision has implications on me, potentially in the negative, in that I've had to watch people I love be unable to handle their alcohol and die from it. I've known people who've died in, in, in accidents that were caused by drunk drivers. And I know what the toll of freedom in that particular space is, but I am wholly unwilling to completely give up on allowing people that freedom in the name of sort of protecting you know, our greater good as society, and even can I, can in an area as small as and alcohol. On, on maybe taking the weight of, uh, from alcohol and going back to democracy, I think we also shouldn't get too fixated with the uh, higher level of democratic institutions. So a country is democratic or not. And uh, democracy is at so many different levels. So a very democratic uh, kind of conversation that I experienced recently was the one in my own university, where at the beginning, the sense was... Uh, oh, let's just do business as usual. Let's go online. Let's go like... Uh, and then slowly, and the voices started to emerge, both from staff and from students, saying, you know what? South Africa has a very high level of mobile penetration, but uh, still 15% or 20% of uh, our students don't have access to mobile devices. They would enable them uh, to do the fancy, like, Ivy League uh, kind of online thing. Uh, and there was a very open, very democratic, and very impassioned uh, conversation that we had uh, on uh, that transformed the view on what we should do with our own students, sort of like uh, deciding to, to be more empathetic, to sort of just put ourselves in the shoes of the most vulnerable. Uh, and uh, it was a pleasure to be part of that kind of conversation uh, and seeing the very strong shift from a harder, we are a top institution, let's uh, finish the academic here and uh, we will all go online, uh, with a more, the, with a deeper understanding of, you know, a lot of staff uh, don't have uh, uh, the opportunity to work as they would work with school open and a lot of students uh, are vulnerable. And, and I think there are so many different layers of democracy. One is at the very top, but we should also consider democracy as it exercises in different type of communities uh, and, uh, and keep an eye on that. Uh, and I think a country would function, and this will be also another interesting question, uh, whether or not uh, different types of democracy at different levels, at different scales, uh, are in tune with one another. So is the top leadership uh, enforcing something that communities are fighting against because they see as uh, overbearing uh, and uh, unsustainable, or the local communities, the household and the institution and the firm are sort of in line and they are in this together. And in some countries, I see this feeling of, well, you know what, for now we are in this together. And it is something that it's kind of beautiful to watch. And I don't know if this can endure in the long term, uh, but, uh, but again, it's, it's an interesting experience and it's an opportunity we should seize. And I have never seen South Africa as united as it is right now. I, I, no, I really like where you've taken that thought because, you know, there, there's a lot of reading I've been doing lately on people that are pointing to data points that suggest that complete shutdowns for most African nations are probably not the way to go. Taking into account very unique sort of cultural, social, economic uh, realities in different African countries. Now, back to the question Landry asked me earlier on, am I suggesting that we should have this super loose, super free situation where everybody decides what they do and not allow or 
welcome the government's enforcing of certain interim measures in order to ensure that people comply? No, I wouldn't go as far as that, but I, I would encourage like a thoughtfulness that I think is embodied in the anecdote you just shared there, Eugenio, which is generally as human beings, especially when we're thinking about sort of macroeconomics or trying to sort of create files and, and folders for everything, we're given to oversimplifications about what works. It's been quite amusing for me to read through what a lot of the consulting firms are suggesting institutions and corporations and, and governments do in response to this. So that's kind of where I'm coming from with, with this laundry. I'm not an anarchist that just wants to see the total decentralization of rule, at least not as far as governance at, at most sort of sovereign levels. But I do wonder if we are sort of mindlessly applauding some of our lawmakers and, and governors overreaching at a time when all of us are worried about just getting out of this alive. Let me also just uh, be clear here. Prohibiting alcohol is not necessarily something that I would have encouraged. The, uh, so the, the conversation is about the broader, reasonable health measures where there is a convergence with scientific evidence decided and not just locally, but also within partnership with other regional or international partners. But as you pointed out, many countries are seizing this opportunity to overreach or to over-restrict, and those should be watched uh, very closely uh, because the connection, although some will highlight uh, perhaps domestic violence, but prohibiting alcohol to all uh, because some may abuse it. I think the one abusing should be the one targeted versus a broader systematic uh, prohibition. But again, those questions are critical uh, and need to be discussed because in most democracies, the total prohibition of alcohol will be difficult to pass because those same lawmakers are also some of the ones consuming those, among others. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so glad we've taken this little detour because, you know, it was important for me to sort of demonstrate to everybody listening and to you guys as my conversants um, that I am invested in us successfully navigating the situation. I have very close relatives, even here in the UK, who are in the medical profession, who have recently been diagnosed with COVID-19. And I am fully invested in us getting through this and getting through this better and stronger and with as many of us alive and healthy. But I'm also very, very, very concerned that we don't do so at the expense of future that we haven't properly thought out. And, and so with that behind us, let's jump into this book, um, Unlocking Africa's Business Potential, Trends, Opportunities, Risks, and Strategies. Landry, I've had a, a squiz at this book. I'm uh, a good way in. And you didn't see this, uh, this crisis coming, did you? <laughs> so, of course, I anticipated that we'll have a crisis, perhaps not necessarily to the extent of COVID, uh, because the uh, broader economies, uh, global economies, have been growing for a too long time relatively sustainably. So I think that African economies have never been as resilient as they are now. So they may not be the most resilient economies globally, but they have almost never been as resilient as they are now. And these are for many reasons. Of course, uh, the level of competitiveness has substantially increased 
uh, over the past couple of decades with many African countries uh, uh, represented in the uh, top 100 most competitive countries uh, globally. Not enough to my taste, but an increased number and many, so it's, it's a good news. You also have, of course, some people may consider it as a negative point, but I think the uh, African population is also an important strength. If well managed, uh, we have uh, the increase in terms of accountability. If you look in the late 80s, uh, most African countries were authoritarian, if not all. Uh, now we have an increased number of more African countries living under a democratic regime than the contrary. And Sorry, can I pause there? Like, why would people look at uh, population growth as anything but a good thing? Because you have the uh, demographic transition. And from, as of now, the continent needs something around 20 million jobs per year. So, of course, number will fluctuate with some estimate about 11, 12 million to 20 million jobs per year. So there's a shortcoming in terms of unemployment. It's one of the uh, uh, major concerns. So and the high level of poverty, as you know, uh, countries such as Nigeria and Democratic Republic of Congo have some of the highest proportion of poverty globally. So that's why some consider the African demography as a potential curse. I think instead that he could offer a tremendous opportunity, but of course, Leaders also have to better uh, manage uh, the demographic transition. They have to empower the youth, increase the level of education achievements, and also provide, adjust, uh, train uh, the, the young people uh, or to the work of the future. So, so I think if well managed, the African population is definitely a blessing. But if well managed. What in the writing of this book do you point to as Africa's role as far as an opportunity to position cleverly and emphatically? So we'll, we'll talk about how you thought of this in the writing of this book, which was, I imagine, done mostly long before this COVID-19 thing even became a, absolutely, a thing. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, but yeah, so what was your sense of what was, I don't want to call it broken because I don't think you used those words, but you definitely point to attention and the sort of opportunity that you, I think, describe Africa as being in a position to contribute to solving for or positioning around? So I see, let's say, about 10 to 11 trends, broader trends. So before highlighting some of those trends clearly, so I wanted to, to mention, of course, the broader competitiveness of the African economies that I, I highlighted there. Another important uh, trend is also the increased foreign direct uh, investment and the diversification of African partners, uh, named China, the Saudi Arabian, the North Korean, the Indian, the Turkish, and among others. So those are the diversification of partners have provided also the continent with some leverage and the possibility, which is not always used, but that's why I'm saying possibility, the possibility uh, to better uh, negotiate deals. So we have two also other factors. Uh, one is the African uh, continental free trade area, which will face a challenge because the countries were supposed to be uh, trading under the CFTA as of July of this year. However, let me point out that the uh, African continental free trade area was, uh, as you know, 
uh, and most of the listeners know, uh, was adopted in 2018. And then a sufficient number of countries have ratified uh, for it to come into force uh, in 2019. But the actual trading under the African Continental Free Trade Area is planned to be starting as of July 2020. But this is still subject of additional negotiation as when it was planned, uh, COVID was not there. Finally, we also have the fourth industrial revolution. Many countries, including in the fight against uh, COVID, which is increasingly empowering people both in the formal and the informal sector, businesses, corporation, government. Everyone speaks, for example, about Zipline in Rwanda, Ghana, and other countries delivering blood. So you have artificial intelligence helping to predict or to find some of the solution to many of the challenges uh, which are faced by many African countries. So those are some of the broader trend related to the transformation of African economies for which even if COVID-19 impact on the short run, over the long run, uh, the continent will still perform well. As a matter of fact, I think uh, the estimate from the International Monetary Fund have shown that this is mostly in 2020 that the continent will be affected. And mostly because some of the largest economies, such as South Africa and uh, Nigeria, on the continent will be among the most affected economies. However, as of 2021, growth in Africa will come back to a, a reasonably high level. So, so I, I want to point out, yes, on one hand, uh, we have to be concerned about the direct and short-term impact of COVID-19, the health impact, but also the economic one. But on the other hand, if you think about the post-COVID strategy, many of the discussions or conclusions or trends observed in the book will be quite similar. Your book is presenting a very bullish notion around Africa and its potential. Absolutely. So are you absolutely as bullish as you were before? I would say that I'm probably even more, except perhaps for some sectors like the one of infrastructure, which require massive investment and for which many of the key investors uh, may not be available or investment may be less available potentially or in the mining on oil and, gold and gas sector perhaps. So Landry, I'm going to come back to this because I do want you to give me a sense of why you feel that way. And I'll give you a moment to think about your top three areas in which you feel Africa has its strongest proposition post a situation of this nature. But I, I want to pose a question to Eugenio. You know, a lot of people are even more bullish than they were prior to this whole crisis about the future of Africa. For a lot of people, it's forget the leapfrog. It is the fast forward that is the new black. Um, people are seeing this situation as a backhanded blessing. And I say this very carefully. I don't mean to trivialize the pain that the world is going through right now. But a lot of people, and I'm attending quite a few you know, of these webinars, I'm speaking to, to founders, I'm listening to investors, and a lot of them are seeing this as a backhanded blessing. And so my question to you is, can we really innovate our way out of this to a new normal that's actually better for everyday Africans than everything that came before? You'd spend 10 years writing a book about what arguably is the most pragmatic relationship Africa has with a foreign trade partner, which is China. Uh, when I say pragmatic, I say relative to 
what is often rhetoric first or values first or rhetoric forward engagements that typically characterize our relationships with the US and, and parts of Europe and, and the UK and so on, you might have some pragmatic insights about how cautiously optimistic to be. I'm very optimistic. I share Landry's view. And I, I want to use Oh, an this image. is hopeless. I have two hopeless optimists on this call. I can't believe it. <laughs> I want to use an image that you, you just created. You know, you, you gave a minute to, to Landry to think. I think these can be seen as an opportunity for some countries, clearly not all countries, not all countries in Africa or not all countries anywhere in the world are ready for, for seizing these in equal ways. But to pose and think about vulnerabilities and strength. And if this is done properly, it's not just like, let's rush back to business as usual and forget about this very difficult moment. There is clearly a lot of anxiety in our hearts. Uh, and uh, it can uh, make some of the processes uh, that are already activated. I very much share the view of Landry that, uh, you know, many African countries have never been as resilient as now, but also seeing, seizing it even more because we know better. And I use you, uh, you refer my, my work in China and Africa. And uh, one thing that I try to stress in my book it is a lot of the big narratives, unfortunately, are those of like, what is China doing to Africa? What is the West doing to Africa? And what I try to do in the book, and I'm not alone, many scholars are doing something similar, is like recognizing the, the agency and the ability of combining different uh, experiences, forms of innovation from the East and from the West uh, and creating their own. Let's not forget that there's a lot of ingenuity and sort of creating, as South Africa is doing right now with COVID-19, you know, they keep saying, the WHO is saying, oh, South Africa has a very unique pattern. If you look at the curve of the COVID-19, it's different from South Korea, it's different from China, it's different from Italy, it's different from the United Kingdom and so forth. It's unique. So if we are able to pose and think about uh, certain forms of uniqueness, uh, the next step could be even, not stronger, but could build on more solid grounds. And I think we should embark in this kind of process. And uh, if I can add just another thing, you use the word leapfrogging. And this is used a lot, uh, has been used a lot, in, and even in the Laundry's book, uh, in uh, the information and communication technology sector, Africa doesn't have to like uh, use uh, all the fixed line because we have the mobile phone. Absolutely true. It's kind of like obvious. But I think that we can move beyond the, that narrative because what we have tended to, to think about leapfrogging is let's forget a, an intermediate technology and lend it to the same technology that has been produced in the United States or in uh, Finland, for that matter. And, or let's uh, forget about the role of infrastructure altogether. <laughs> well, we, at some levels we can, but the thing is that because of some of the very reasons that Laundry uh, indicates in the book and also in, uh, in our conversation, our population growth, so, uh, Africa is the latest, really the latest frontier when it comes to like uh, access to digital devices. I think Africa can sort of set its own terms because a lot of, uh, we see it in Ethiopia with the liberalization of the telecommunication, there's a lot of very hungry partners uh, that want to do work on the continent. And maybe Africa can say, you know what? We want a different type of information society. Not that it looks like China with all this kind of like surveillance and social control, but not either the United States. We want to create our own uh, 
more like ambitious and utopian view of uh, what we can do with technology. And COVID-19 and uh, coming together has showed us the way to do that. So I think there's a lot of strength. I'm sorry to be an optimist, but I have to be. I can't be otherwise. <laughs> I mean, look, it's not like I hate your optimism and it's not that I'm not a hopeful African. It's just that I'm just cautious that we don't gloss over some of the more obvious realities that are being brought to light by this situation. For instance, you know, while we're having this conversation, what appears to be a reinvention of the world order is on the go to essentially, for the most part, from what I can tell, promote what came before or consolidate what came before. We might be sitting here going, you know, let's leapfrog our way out of this. And it's like, well, maybe it's deeper than that. Maybe Africa is not going to mirror what brought the Alibaba boom in Asia around the, the SARS epidemic. Maybe it won't be like that. Maybe we need to be more pragmatic about the nature of things and why we're in this position to begin with and how it won't just be a matter of how smart we are, how determined we are, how together we are that's going to get us out of this. I know it's a very... I'm bringing down the mood, gentlemen. No, but no, I, not, not at all. First, I want to point out some extremely important keywords brought by uh, Izinho. The first one, agency. We cannot speak as if uh, African leaders, either individually or collectively, cannot do not have agency. Whether for the great things which are being accomplished on the continent or for the bad one, there is a level of agency and and one who speaks about agency also speaks about accountability for what is uh, done and also the definition of its own terms, how the continent could define its own term, which is one of the goals also of the CFTR, though of course you are still a lot uh, to be done for it uh, to be uh, successfully uh, implemented cannot speak about African leaders or about African businesses or African in general as if they do not have agency, as if they cannot frame, shape, uh, strategize and build the world uh, the way. And when I speak about building the world, I'm speaking whether at the local level, at the sub-regional level, at the uh, national level or at the continental level and of course why not having a global contribution. Let me tell you that for the very first time I participated in a lot of African negotiation about a couple of years ago if I'm not wrong. I have seen the African negotiating with your counterpart in the Agua border conversation and I have never seen African leaders speaking with one voice as I have seen then and promoting the African continental free trade area. Even at the beginning of the conversation, the official position of the US was we will not discuss or engage with the African continental free trade area because we don't think that it will work anyway and because we prefer bilateral engagement or agreements. And recently, not just the United States Trade Representative uh, or part of your team have issued a joint statement with the African Union and in particular Ambassador Muchanga demonstrating that they will engage with Africa also through the African Continental Free Trade Area and I have attended many other conversations where US officials including uh, the interim coordinator of the Prosper Africa which is the US program aiming at uh, increasing two-way trade and investment between the U.S. and African countries. So I've seen official uh, communication and official support, uh, including uh, the commitment to provide some resources. So this shows that when African countries join forces and speak with one voice, we can see clear outcome, and including when engaging with the biggest powers. I'm really encouraged to hear that. I've never heard, and certainly it's never been on mic on our show, 
that level of affirmation of just how much progress is being made as far as Africa being able to stand up for herself and represent our own interests. I was the very first surprise, believe me, <laughs> because I have been working also with many African countries, the representative ambassadors here, and I give some briefing before the negotiation. They usually have a meeting with experts uh, to provide briefings, insights, and provide some strategies. But I must tell you that I was the very first surprised to see the unity in the African position and in the, the representative. So I interrupted you. You have a thought, and I want you to, to get to that thought on your way to the final thought, which will be give us your sense of the top three things that you think coming out of this crisis, Africa would do well to position around in order to assert itself in what's coming next. But don't lose your thoughts on your way there. Absolutely. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so in my book, Unlocking Africa's Business Potential, I identify about, let's say, three categories of countries which I can connect now with COVID-19. And I think the classification of African economies, especially their past performance, can tell us a lot about the resilience or the different types of growth narratives that we'll see on the continent. So the first group of countries include countries which have had steady economic performance over the past uh, two decades. So those countries will include on one hand the fast growers, like countries such as Rwanda, for example, or Ethiopia, and the slower growers with countries such as Morocco. So given the strong fundamentals of those economies, including the implementation of pro-growth policies, the improving ease of doing business and governance uh, effectiveness, as well as your particular relation with international donors and investors, I think that post-COVID-19 phase, those countries will present a tremendous economic uh, potential. This is the first uh, category of countries. And of course, the, the growth rate will be different. So for example, countries such as Rwanda and, and Ethiopia will go much faster than a country like Morocco. So the second group of countries include countries such as Cote d'Ivoire and Ghana. They have had a GDP growth rate which has improved significantly of the, over the past decade. So if you see the first group, two decades of strong economic performance and with a strong uh, basis uh, for continued growth and to manage effectively shocks. So the second group is about a decade of relatively improved uh, economic uh, performance. So although those countries, this will be the second most resilient group of countries, and definitely they have fundamentals. You have the improved state capacity. Cote d'Ivoire, for example, was coming out of a civil war. Although Ghana has remained more uh, stable uh, institutionally, and they also have a good macroeconomic management with and a good relation with uh, multilateral institutions. So those countries will have a lot of potential. However, so depending on which policies will be adopted by the leadership, the growth could continue and eventually at a faster uh, uh, pace. So perhaps the third group of countries is definitely the country where will have more heterogeneous outcomes. So this group of countries include countries whose economic performance have been either very slow or have substantially oscillated between growth and decline over the past two decades. So the slow growers will include countries like Central African Republic, Chad, Zimbabwe, or the oscillating countries will include countries such as uh, Gabon, Malawi, Nigeria, uh, or Angola. 
overall, some, some of those countries are more exposed than others. If I speak about Angola, for example, Angola, uh, China was the primary buyer of 61% of total Ang Angolan export, to which I can connect also the over 10 billion in all back loans that China provided uh, to Angola. So though, given uh, the broader context of uh, the reduced spending of China on those type of issues, the, the, the countries such as Angola, which are relatively dependent on a few number of importers, will be the most affected. So I wanted to, to highlight at least uh, those elements of resilience. So we have different group of countries, and within the three main categories, we'll also have a different subcategory with different level of resilience. And that is the reason why I tell you that I'm telling you that I'm even more bullish now uh, than before, because uh, except for some sectors, of course, I, I spoke about infrastructure, infrastructure resources will be much more difficult to secure than uh, before. Now, turning on uh, some core elements uh, of the book or some major trends so that I observe, uh, and I know we don't have a lot of time, so uh, so I will not go into details, but uh, but I suppose we can Yeah, have for anyone who's interested, well, the book's going to be out shortly, but uh, perhaps a sweetener just for our audience. Absolutely. So the book will be out on April 27th, but it's already available on April 27th. So by the time people hear this, it'll be available. People can go get it. It'll definitely be available everywhere books are sold online. So go ahead and look for it. You can go Google it and we'll put a link to it in in our show notes. So we'll do Fantastic. That. So those are some of the key trends which make me be bullish about the content. We have a fast uh, population growth. As you know, by 2030, the continent will have 1.7 billion uh, habitants. And of all those, 50% of that population is, is in about seven countries. Of course, Nigeria, Ethiopia, Egypt, Democratic... And Eugenio is helping South Africa there. Absolutely. South Africa, yes. Uh, Kenya, Tanzania, Democratic Republic of Congo, <laughs> Egypt. You're part of history there, Eugenio. <laughs> so we also have a growth of uh, the middle class and household consumption. I don't like to speak too much about middle class. I prefer to speak about the percentage of people with available discretionary income. So they will be slightly affected during the COVID crisis, but will jump back uh, quickly again uh, after the COVID crisis. So as a matter of fact, they, they may reach up to 43% of the population by 2030. And when you speak about those household consumption, sectors such as food and beverage, housing, healthcare, a sector where we have a steady growth uh, given uh, the population growth, but also the income growth. I can also see how that's going to become much more of a priority for people in that category who probably took some of those things for granted. After a crisis like this, I imagine there's going to be an investment in that direction. To a massive investment. And, and that's a good point that you made because it's connected also to the agriculture and agri-processing sector, the manufacturing and industrial development, construction and transport, which are some of the largest uh, sectors uh, we have the fast urbanization. As you know, the continent will go from 6 to 17 cities of more than 5 million from 2015 to 2030, but also from 3 cities to 5 cities of more than 10 million uh, habitants from 2015 to 2030. There's one thing that we call at the Brookings Institution industries without smokestacks that people have often overlooked, which are ICT-based industry. In fact, between 1998 and 2015, 
export in those industries were six times faster than in traditional manufacturing. And those industries are characterized by their exportability, tradability, and labor intensive. So they would definitely provide opportunities for uh, African citizens. So the effort to close the infrastructure gap will continue, although will be affected, but will substantially continue. We have innovation and the fast digitalization. One thing that I like to remind people is that before in the late 90s, New York City had more mobile phone subscribers than the entire Af uh, continent of Africa. And now the continent have over 700 million mobile phone subscribers, much higher than that, but it's more than 700 mobile phone subscribers. And when I last checked, we had more than 618 active herbs. Uh, entrepreneurship is growing fast on the continent, more than 20%. It's one of the uh, favorite uh, activities of citizens. You have an increased stability. So uh, in the late um, 80s, 90s, most of the uh, unstable countries in the world were based in Africa. Although we still have many uh, unstable countries on the continent, however, stability has brought the increase. We have, for the three last point, the improved business environment. Uh, five of the top 10 uh, countries which uh, uh, had the best improvement, the ease of doing business, for example, in 2018, were located in Africa. And whether the countries are democratic or non-democratic, they really understand the need of improving the business environment. We have also the fast uh, regional integration, independently of the African continental free trade area, especially with the regional economic committees, but also now increasingly with the African continental free trade area, Outside of the, the Africa Union deal, what would you point to as more cohesion as far as like trade regionally? So yeah, definitely you have uh, the, uh, the East African uh, community also. You have some challenges with some of the countries, but uh, it is one of the most integrated uh, sub-region. You have the also uh, economic uh, community of West African states where citizens can move. Of, of course, we have non-trade barriers which remain challenges, such as infrastructure and sometimes administrative processes. And we also have the Southern, the SADC, so which is also an extremely important player. Lager are countries in Central Africa, so we, we trade the least. One thing which is extremely important is that when African countries trade with one another, over 42% of the, the, the product exchange are manufactured products. So, which means that these jobs are created, added values are created. But when they trade with the rest of the world, it's about 17%. So, it's also a, a, a good thing to do business between African countries because they increase the industrialization, the diversification of the economies, uh, as well as they allow the continent to be stronger, as I mentioned uh, earlier, when negotiating with partners uh, such as the United States, as I have seen when they were negotiating the post-AGOA. And another point that we don't necessarily speak a lot, but for which I'm very hopeful, is also the diaspora. So I think the diaspora is playing a critical role, uh, building bridges, representing the continent, the ambassadors of the continent, whether in trade, investment, research, innovation, uh, which is important. I, I could speak about remittance and about many other factors, but I know that we are running out of time. We're here for as long as you need. You're the one with the with the crazy schedule. So uh, I'm actually glad that we've gotten through. And you noticed I wasn't interrupting you as often as I interrupt our guests. Eugenia will tell you that I... <laughs> Thank I you very much. You are very kind. <laughs> I interrupt a lot because I really did want our listeners to benefit 
benefit as fully as possible from everything you had to say. And perhaps we'll have another chance to have you back. But by the way, I, I co-sign your diaspora point and the, the role being played by diasporan uh, founders, diasporan investors, diasporan policymakers, even diasporans who are contributing from a distance to economies, you know, just through remittances, for example, or active participation in, in home economies and in things of that nature. That's definitely not something to, to wink at. And so, listen, you've, you've made up, I think, a fairly compelling case. I wouldn't go as far as saying I've been satisfied in being able to unpack it fully. So please look forward to an invitation back for me to sort of carefully think through some of what you've put out here and possibly identify some of the areas that I'd like you to sort of unpack a little more, especially once I've been through your book fully. But for now, it, it suffices to say I'm glad to have to have someone as distinguished as you, as accomplished as you, as active as you in the matters that you come to be known as an expert at. It's also exciting to know that you are that much more bullish about the, the future of Africa, even despite what's going on in the world today. And one last time, I'm going to thank you for being on the show. Let me get this right. <clears throat> Londres Signier, full professor and founding co-director of the Fourth Industrial Revolution and Globalization. 4.0 at Thunderbird School of Global Management. Thank you so much for being on the African Tech Roundup. Thank you very much. Uh, I'm the one honored to have been invited and to have participated, including with our distinguished Izinio. So thank you for uh, having me. Absolutely. Absolutely. Izinio, do you have a few minutes for us to wrap things up after Laundry leaves us? I'm locked down, so unless my daughter knocks at <laughs> the door, I'm here. And you can tend to her as well if you, if you, if you need be. Landry, thank you so much, man. Thank you very much. I have to leave. Bye-bye. Thank you very much again. <laughs> so, Eugenio, I was just burning listening to Landry. I think he really is passionate for the issues that he sort of outlines in his book. And the reason I was burning is, as you know, I'm constantly thinking about what could that mean? To what extent are you, as Osaruman likes to say, thinking of the world as it should be versus as it is, you know? Uh, and I wonder what you make of some of what he had to say. Well, uh, you know, I'm not an optimist by nature. And I think some of the trends are very much there. I can see it for countries like, you know, Ethiopia and, uh, and Rwanda and so forth, the resilience, uh, there would be even more anger for investing and for being there when certain things happen. One thing that I can't keep, take out of my mind, and I think it wasn't explored as much in the uh, conversation or in the book, uh, is inequalities. Inequalities play in ways that uh, just put a very powerful break on some of the trends that Laundry discussed. Uh, and unless we deal with it front and center, we will always see like bubbles and niches of like excellence and, and innovation and expertise, but we will forget uh, so much uh, of the continent. So yeah. being bullish is good. It's good to create uh, dreams and vision people can buy into. But at the same time, uh, living in South Africa and especially during the COVID-19 uh, crisis, uh, you can't forget about that. And inequalities uh, can actually help if, if factored in, uh, creating more resilience version, maybe slower one uh, of what Laundry talked about. Uh, so yeah. this is uh, probably a missing piece that I would stress. I suppose, yeah. I mean, you're an expat in South Africa. You're living in the northern suburbs of Johannesburg, correct? Yeah, 10 minutes one of from the, Yeah, so one of the, the most pleasant areas of Johannesburg to be living in and raising a family and... I suppose it's definitely not lost on you just how many people in South Africa get born, live and die without ever experiencing the level of comfort and, and privilege you enjoy as an outsider living in the country. Absolutely. And let's talk about a practical example of how these dynamics impact real people and how we need to sort of watch 
how we don't get carried away by some of the whizier quote-unquote solutions being proposed to the situation and how they might have an impact going forward. So let's take something like contact tracing, right? We see South Korea tracking people um, fairly successfully. We see India calling it a success, even though uh, from an adoption standpoint, they need many, many, many more people sort of opting into this app that will help trace the spread or contribute to a data-led combating of the spread via, lack of a better term, surveillance, right? Using their mobile phones. The Chinese, of course, perfect this, just go on Twitter and see how citizens there are showing how effectively this thing works. And, and technically, yes, people are opting in. They're giving permission to their mobile networks to let the government know where they are in order to get on this bus and, and so on and so forth. But frankly, it's getting to the point where there's a technical opt-in, you know, as far as like the democratic aspect of this. Like they're not forcing you to tell them where you are, but they are telling you that if they can't verify where you've been, you can't jump onto this bus or into this train station or enter this apartment block or this neighborhood, right? And and of course, in the name of getting us out of this trouble, it, it sounds pretty compelling, this case for like tech being able to sort of do things for us and, and help us get done this crazy task of surviving this this virus when... Yeah, I mean, there are concerning outcomes or potential outcomes for those of us who aren't at the highest end of, of privilege in this world versus those of less. Yeah, you know, I'm not a techno optimist. Uh, I'm not a techno enthusiast. Uh, I, but I do think that in this phase, technology will be a bit determinant uh, of uh, determinant is a word that I'm using. Uh, I never use, but in this case, I'm using the thinking about it uh, of whether or not we can ex- experience again certain forms of sociality. Said that tech fixes are always a problem. And uh, I, I use in my work the word of technopolitics, meaning like if technology is not grounded in, the, in into a community, it's, it's in, in a way of being, in a way of interpreting uh, uh, relationships of power, it will never work. And it was this very interesting case. We were talking earlier on about uh, different uh, uh, sections of a society being uh, either in agreement or in disagreement towards certain measures. And there was this case, uh, even in in super surveilling China, uh, there was a case of a man uh, who did something that we think uh, impossible in order to game the system is uh, he left his phone at home. And we do think that we keep the phone with ourselves so it will be able to trace our contacts with other people. This guy didn't use a very tech-savvy uh, uh, fix. Uh, it just said, you know what? I'm going to do my own things and the phone is going to stay at home. So it's not going to collect uh, all the traces of who I'm going to meet or not meet. And this person could have been uh, a carrier of virus. Uh, just to give an example of what it happens when... Uh, so the next law might be if you own a phone, you have to have it on you <laughs> at all times. To, to like an ID. <laughs> like an ID in some countries. Um, I think it might still be law in Zimbabwe, for example, to, to be an ID carrier and not have it on you at all times. And uh, and we'll be surrounded and submerged in the lows. And uh, and but this is an example of when communities, you know, certain standards uh, don't uh, go together. But at the same time, going back to the discussion we were having about inequalities, uh, we learned uh, uh, because of the work I do in uh, in a university that uh, there are so many people who don't have uh, phones, or even at uh, in an in a tertiary uh, institution or their phones are not enabled to do stuff that uh, is needed uh, for education. So reading stuff, downloading things and so forth. But these can be an obstacle, but these can also be an opportunity to take things into account. 
uh, it's not just a smartphone. You know, in China we and in South Korea, obviously, uh, the expectation is everybody's going to be carrying their smartphone around. But also, like feature phone have like Bluetooth, and uh, and some big powers uh, are looking into using Bluetooth to enable certain forms of uh, of content tracing. And uh, in many countries, there are non-tech ways. Uh, to build solidarity around certain kind of decisions. So I think we should have all these different things on the table. And you mentioned earlier on uh, blockchain and China, a way to escape uh, the kind of like uh, dystopian scenario of the Chinese government tracing people through face recognition software and cameras and phones and so forth, uh, is also possibly to seize the power of blockchain, not for currency, but for creating a global sense of uh, trust into a tool uh, that is not going to be managed by any single individual, being a company or a government, uh, but is going to be in uh, built in into a system that nobody actually manages uh, and can trace whether or not uh, I can be allowed to go into a train or uh, step into a school. And these kind of ideas can. I wish come... you could see my the the look on my face right now. <laughs> Why? That is so not going to happen. Like, come I on. Know, but it could. And if Donald I Trump wasn't withdrawing I mean, $200 million from the WHO, we could make a way into it. I know it's very expensive to, to run a blockchain and so forth, but it could be an opportunity for a different kind of global compact. I know this is over-optimistic and, uh, and probably is just uh, something we will put back into the drawer, but it's kind of a thought that we, we could have for a little bit. I don't think it's too crazy because it would allow kind of humanity to be human and we will allow not to have like our leaders, but having like... Uh, a way to just uh, have technology caring for us without us caring about who is having access to what we can't have access to. The fact is, there is no version of that future that the most powerful economies and political players in the world are going to buy into at the expense of an erosion of their ability to continue to wield power. And for me, I feel like that shouldn't prevent us all from dreaming or striving towards idealistic expressions of creativity and projects, maybe even fuel our idealism. But I think we are blind to it at our own peril. And I think there's a binary conversation that's happening in the world because we are so desperate, because I, I'm, not a, I'm not a father, but I can imagine how, if I were, the well-being and health of my child is, is such a binary concern for me. As far as for many people who love their children, they would do anything to keep them safe. And I think appreciating how cornered we are in this position forces us to be a little more careful about just assuming that good will prevail from a situation like this. Am I, am I a Debbie Downer today? I don't know. I just feel like... I look at something like education, for example, which again is being billed as this fast forward opportunity Africa might have to reevaluate what great education at scale could look like on the African continent. And I think as a, as a premise, that's amazing. But if I can jump on the education one, I, I think it's such a moment of reckoning, and it could be. As a lecturer, I try my best to put in my, in my syllabus uh, the stuff that I would love to read if I was like 19 or 20 in, uh, in this period in time. So I carefully craft it. I, I enjoy giving my lecture. But sometimes, uh, as a conversation I was having with a colleague, we, just, uh, we are not an automatic pilot. We walk into a large lecture hall and we just start talking about stuff that we think is really interesting. And, and we have good feedback and the students think it's interesting and, and so forth. 
But in a situation like these where we can't say, oh, let's, let's build just flashy online platform because it won't work in South Africa right now, we sort of ask ourselves harder question like, what are the kind of uh, skills, abilities, way to interpret the world that, that our, we would like our students to have at the end of this course? And maybe it's obvious, but these obvious questions are not questions that we ask ourselves that often. But we have to ask these questions right now because the bandwidth is very small. Uh, students, even if they are young, they might have to take care of their own kids or their parents or their families or can people affected. So we have to recognize they're in a period of very high anxiety and stress. Uh, and we have to get to the basic. That doesn't mean making our education more basic, but asking like, what's education about? And I think this is fundamental. And it's not a question that myself or our colleagues were asking ourselves as easily a month ago. And I think it will stay with us. Do you know what I like about what you've just said? I feel like that's closer to the pragmatic center that I want to encourage any African or Africa-focused proponent or Africa-based innovator to center around. I think we need to be asking how to deliver on basics, like almost a return to fundamentals. And that's not to say don't dream. I mean, I recently listened in on a Zoom call that uh, a fairly high-profile Nigerian entrepreneur slash investor was speaking in. And he often is on the side of like this really blind optimism that I sense feels obligatory for a lot of us who, who are born here and, and feel a sense of loyalty to the continent, which I understand and I think comes from a good place. But the one thing that I, I think really came out of what he shared and what resonated with me is his sense of how for innovators in Africa, like it's going to boil down to who can actually deliver on results within context, where this is no longer like a, ret a rhetoric point, it is a reality. Because the world is about to get really preoccupied, the Western world is about to get really preoccupied in preventing like complete and utter upheaval economically, that we are about to find out what it actually means to be left to ourselves. This is my sense of things. That would be interesting. And I feel like if we are not focusing in a disciplined fashion on things that actually move the needle in, in how we're going to replace all the, God forbid, all the people we're going to lose to this thing and, and the impact that's going to have on our economy in human terms. And, and it's so tempting right now to sort of just to sell moonshots, but I, I, I'm not inclined to sell moonshots when my family is trapped in Zimbabwe, you know, I, and I don't know that it's healthy that we ignore how we got to the place where there are so few ICU beds in my hometown of Bulawayo in favor of like promoting the sense that, you know, we can still fly plasma by drone. I'm absolutely with you. Tech solutionism, uh, that shouldn't have any space right now. You and I both know like the world is a, gr is a super unfair place and people don't get up in the morning waking up about like, how can we fix Africa? Like they really aren't. No. They, whoever they are, know themselves. Like no one's waking up in the morning going, oh my word, Africa's about to have the first recession in 25 years. No, <laughs> they act, like no, no one is actually concerned. And, and so in that world, there are stories that sell the idea that, you know, we're moving the needle on innovation, on change, on inclusion. People are dying, you know, like... So I don't know. For me, it's like maybe that's that's part of what might be the evolution of, of this show, because there's a side of me, if I'm honest, I've been flipping through some of our past shows and I'm like, 
what was I even on? Was this, is this even real? Was I, like, what was I selling here? Like, I'm starting to feel like I've been selling false dreams. I think it was a period. I think there was no, not in bed, you know, like when Kenya in 2010 and uh, all in Pesa is going to take the world by storm and Africa is going to change. And uh, and you talked about it in your show, you know, that it's happening in Kenya. And then you try to move to South Africa and it doesn't work. You try to move it to the DRC, obviously it doesn't work and so forth. I think it was a sense of euphoria. And I think this kind of like gloomier and, and more tragic way of looking at things uh, uh, paradoxically could be empowering as much as like uh, for some people not being on alcohol in uh, for three weeks or maybe five weeks, uh, first two weeks are just terrible. And then you start saying, you know what, I sleep better. I'm less mean to my wife or my kids or why. So I think if there is a, a next round of innovation, it's not going to be the solution is of the people getting up and saying, let's fix Africa, but it's going to be a more grounded and more humane. It's not necessarily more, uh, I don't know, it's not going to be the, the fix. It's not going to be as shiny, but yeah. possibly it's going to be more, again, the, the low tech, I, I strongly believe we still have to trial it. And, and uh, maybe I will be back on the show and talking about that. Uh, the low tech, we, we resisted the illusion of uh, going MOOC uh, and going fancy and going TEDx or like uh, edX uh, or, uh, or, uh, or these. And yeah. we said, you know what? Let's use the post office to deliver uh, the textbooks to the kids that are not into the campuses anymore. And uh, yeah. let's just have basic conversation on humanity and let's have the students write in their diaries uh, as a way to learn about how the media talk about these crises and about other things. Uh, and maybe it's going to have a now. stronger impression on their lives than... Uh, a super fancy background with the latest technology delivered at the exact time on Zoom or on other platforms. I'm vibing with what you're saying. In the same way I vibed with the anecdote you shared about how, you know, you guys at Vitz came to the realization that, no, we can't just afford to be, we are not the University of Sheffield. <laughs> you know what I mean? We're not the University of Sheffield that can just tomorrow turn on virtual teaching and learning and just carry on like no and you don't get to that realization by not soberly reflecting on the facts as they are and, and, and this i think is a talking about democracy i think it's a democratic forms of resistance we accept the lockdown but we don't accept uh, the shiny online services it's not that we have to accept wholesale the whole package uh, a bit of it is fine because I protect myself, my kids, and I protect other people. But when I'm sold, uh, oh, shiny, fancy, super tech education, that's where we have to say no, because it will be completely out of place. What we expect from a new normal also has to be rooted not in this idea we're sold by consulting firms and global institutions that are looking to sort of secure the debt that they've like farmed out. We need to be very careful that we don't let that agenda be set inappropriately to our detriment and, and to the extent to which we ourselves are sort of advancing certain notions. We need to be clear on that. Like this is a time for sobriety. And that's not to say that we'll never get to dream again, nor should we stop to dream. Perhaps even, dare I say, I can't believe I'm saying this on my show. Our dreams need to take a back seat right now. Probably. Or like other dream, let's have other dream taking uh a chance uh, when they were like uh, probably like uh, suffocated by too much hype and too much glitter and maybe we can have more basic ones uh, i really really want to thank you for, for being on the show um it's probably one of the more disorienting episodes i've produced i have seven pages of preparatory notes for this show and yeah we got to some things but i think 
I have preoccupying thoughts that I think make sense to just air out in this raw form. And, um, and so thank you again for indulging me in you know, bringing to bear everything you do um, at Wits University. Uh, I know your, your, your role as a parent right now is on, on fleek. <laughs> your, your academic career doesn't stop. And so I really, really thank you so much for being back on the show. Eugenio Garladone, guys, go check this man out. Uh, he's got an amazing book that really has uh, informed to a great degree my view of the Africa-China, call it China-Africa relationship that's happening, particularly as far as technological issues are concerned. It's available on Amazon. It's available on uh, Zed Publisher on their website. Zed Publisher, that's Z-E-D, and they're, they're independent publishers, so support them. Yeah, rather than Amazon. If you have to choose which, uh, it costs the same. Uh, if you have to choose which e-copy to get, uh, I think Zed if you're going to do choice. the book via e-copy, if you're going to consume it as an e-copy, uh, go to Z Publishers. That's Z-E-D. That's Z-E-D Publishers. So put in the name of the book, which is China, Africa, and the Future of the Internet. Uh, and then, of course, Z-E-D Publishers, and it'll take you straight to where it is. You, you're welcome, basically, because it's a great read, uh, really insightful. And, of course, if you want more on the man himself, well, there's that episode I told you about, episode 132, where he unpacks um, that book and a ton more we didn't get to today. So go ahead and find that at africantechroundup.com. So one last time, thank you so much, Eugenio. And to all of you listening, uh, thank you so much for, for being here. Folks, I, I think this is the time to let you know that I don't know. I really don't know. Um, I often say take it easy to close, and I still wish everyone well, safety, and I wish you safety and health. But I really don't know. Um... I really don't know as far as what, you know, I'm, 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 I'm really torn about what we're here to do, what, you know, in serving you as an audience and serving you as a, as a community and serving our continent and serving humanity. Um, I'm, I'm really starting to, to feel some kind of way about our role in, in, in shaping what comes next. And, and so, yeah, spare a thought for us, um, for me, and the team here at African Tech Roundup as we figure this out. Um, and we'd love to hear from you. Let us know what you're thinking and going through. Um, you can drop us a, a note on Twitter at African Roundup, uh, on Instagram as well at African Roundup. Or you can you know drop us an email. The, the email address is hello at africantechroundup.com. Give us a sense of what you think of everything we discussed and, and where you're at. Where's your head at? Uh, whatever you do, do take it easy, Africa. Africa.